So this morning we're in uh, Genesis chapter 40 and 41. So settle down in your seat. This was going to be a long one. <laughs> I'm just kidding, kind of. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. Um, we're in Genesis 40 and 41, and I'll read it in just a moment. Consider what, what would you think, what, what would it be like if you could tell the future by your dreams? You wake up in the morning, you had a dream, and then either you could interpret it or somebody else you knew could interpret it, and, and then you would know the future. You would know what would be ahead for the next, say, 15 years. What would you think about that? That would be kind of neat, wouldn't it? It, might would be, it would freak us out if it was real, though, right? Uh, I'll tell you about a crazy dream that I had. It's been about a year ago, last November, and I only know it because I wrote it down to send it to someone. Otherwise, I forget them immediately. Uh, so if you have dreams and you're able to remember them and write them down and they're really weird, I would love to hear those. I love hearing those weird dreams. <laughs> but last November, I had this dream, and Mitt Romney, so it was during the election stuff, you know, it was right after the election, Mitt Romney was holding a press conference, and he was at the bottom of this mountain. And he began fighting his way up the mountain with a fencing sword. <laughs> just, just, you know, fighting his way up. Just taking out men left and right. Took out a few guys. He finally made it to the top where there was this podium where he looks into the camera and begins announcing that he will take a cabinet position with the newly elected President Trump. And on the left side of the TV screen, so in my mind, I'm watching this on the TV, on the left side the TV screen is pulsating this face, kind of coming out of the screen a little bit, kind of a creepy-like dream. And it was the face of President Trump. So the end of story. But if you could interpret that dream, what would that mean for the future, right? Think about that, those things. Well, taking it straightforwardly, I got the future wrong in my dream, right? Mitt Romney didn't take a cabinet position or anything like that. Or think about, you know, the other weird dreams that we have. We know that you know, they, they're not interpreting their, the future for us. They may be, you know, certain events that, that are re, we're reviewing in our minds or something like that. I, I don't know the, the exact explanation of our dreams. Maybe some of them are so weird we don't want any explanation for them. Um, but it does remind us that, uh, that our dreams, you know, don't th- tell the future. It reminds us of our lack of knowledge about the future, that, that, that's just something that's not going to take place. We are limited in our knowledge of current events and, and especially of future events. But it reminds us that God is not limited in his knowledge, that indeed he does know the future. Not only that he knows the future, but what? He controls the future. He is sovereign over all things from the least, uh, from the smallest event to the greatest event God is in absolute control. God's sovereignty is seen even in the removing and raising up of leaders and kings, right? And he does this for a reason on this large scale. He raises up leaders for reasons. He takes down leaders for other reasons. We don't necessarily know what those purposes are, right? We don't know if it's Uh, He's choosing to bless a nation or curse a nation or bring judgment on a nation for these things that he does. We are limited in that knowledge as well. We don't know the purposes behind certain events. I've taken the title of our um, sermon this morning from Daniel 2.22, which says, He changes times and seasons. 
He removes kings and sets up kings. And this is what we see here in Genesis 40 and 41 as well. God is raising up Joseph from prison to a position of great power. And he's doing it for a purpose. He's doing it for a reason. And we see woven throughout this, these two chapters the sovereignty of God in bringing this about. His providence in taking Joseph and even t- taking him down to the pit, down to the prison, and then raising him up to a position of power. We find the reason toward the end. And even as we go throughout the rest of Genesis, we find the reason, one of the reasons, that God might use his man to provide for the Egyptians and all who were affected by this great plague, but ultimately to preserve his own people. To continue forward this plan that he had from the beginning. To continue forward his keeping of the promise to Adam in the very beginning and to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. To keep his promise that there would be an offspring who would come, who would save his people from their sins. So in chapters 40 and 41, we see how God raises up this leader. He lifts up Joseph from prison to power, from servant to second in command. And there's some emphasis on the work of Joseph here, on his wisdom, on how he acted faithfully throughout this situation. But ultimately, I think we should see that this this account is centered upon God and his work on his faithfulness. And we learn in this story of God's faithfulness in blessing his people. In this case, uh, blessing Joseph, raising him up for a particular purpose. So this morning, our headings will be four gifts that God gives to Joseph in order that he might be raised up in power as the one who would preserve God's people and therefore uh, God would be found faithful to keep his promises. So look at uh, Genesis 40 and 41. I'm going to read these chapters, and you might say, oh dear, you're going to read both of those chapters. And yes, I am going to read them. And I would encourage you to, every once in a while, in my own personal Bible reading, I have an app that brings up certain readings, and instead of reading it on the page, I listen to it. And it takes you know special focus to be able to do that, to read or to listen to it. But all throughout history, uh, many Christians haven't been able to read God's Word on the page. They've listened to it as a leader spoke it or read it. And we know that God blesses the reading and preaching of His Word. And so we come to this reading, as long as it is, and we say, this is God's holy Word. This is not any other book. And so we know that the Spirit is moving even in the reading and preaching of His Word. Uh, In the smaller Westminster Catechism, uh, the question is this, how, asked, how is the word may af- made effectual to salvation? And the answer is, the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. So let's give attention now to the word of God. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. 
And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in prison. Each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain's guard of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about, I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph 
and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known what they had eaten, that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears, blighted by the east wind, are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe." And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land, and take one-fifth of the produce of the land, and Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Then he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered into the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh 
and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put the food in cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the land, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Now don't begin to think that counts as your weekly Bible reading. You should still be reading the, the scripture this week. So in this passage, I want us to consider uh, four ways God blesses Joseph in order to raise him up to power. Four gifts that God gives to Joseph. And the first is the gift of faith. God gives Joseph faith. Imagine the trial that Joseph had found himself in. He had been sold into slavery by his own brothers. Imagine if you, if you have brothers or if you have uh, siblings, imagine them turning their backs on you and selling you into slavery. And then, however, the Lord raised him up. He ascended to a place in charge of uh, Potiphar's house, only to be wrongfully accused and to thrown into prison again. So not an ideal situation, right? A terrible affliction that Joseph went through. But the scripture says sometime after this, two high officials were imprisoned, the cupbearer and baker of the king. These aren't just, you know, this isn't just the chef and uh, the waiter. These are, these are men of great importance to uh, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to Potiphar. They are very important people. High officials under their charge. And Joseph was assigned to attend them, to serve them as he served uh, in prison. Uh, And in the midst of this difficult situation, this terrible affliction, this trial, this suffering that he is undergoing, wrongfully accused, how does he respond in the midst of it? We see no hint of anger or bitterness at God. We see no hint even of discontentment in Joseph. Rather, we see that he is content in the midst of this situation. We see even this eagerness to use the gift that God had given him. Even we saw from a very young age as he had these dreams and would uh, he didn't give the interpretation, but we kind of assumed the interpretation of them. Um, he has this gift that's been given by God and he has an eagerness to use it even in the midst of this terrible situation. We also do see the desire to change the situation. He tells 
the cupbearer, when you are raised back up, remember me and speak of me so that I may get out of this situation. In verse 8, Joseph's faith is seen in two ways. First, there, is, there seems to be a faith in Joseph, uh, a trust that God had a purpose behind this providence. And second, there seems to be this trust that God had gifted him with the interpretation of dreams for perhaps this very reason, in order that he might be, have this opportunity to serve and to be raised back up. So he hears these dreams and he gives them the meaning, the interpretation, the cupbearer. He will be restored and the baker will be killed. Yet we see another uh, misfortune in verse 23 when the baker, um, the chief cupbearer, did not remember Joseph but forgot him. The next episode we see is two whole years after this, this interpretation of these dreams and the man being released from prison. Well, I want us to consider this, this application in our own lives, what we can learn from Joseph and how God gifted Joseph in the midst of this situation. Have you ever been in a situation that seemed unbearable and it seemed to last forever? We're talking Joseph in this, this particular situation in prison for more than two years. Can you imagine what that would be like? Maybe you've been in a situation yourself that you seemed desperate, it seemed unbearable, it seemed to last for an eternity. As a funny example, Nick and I, when we went to uh, Haiti just this past summer, we had to ride, I think it was just a, a few hours, maybe two or three hours, in a van, no, in a truck, kind of an extended cab truck in the back of it. And our knees were cramped together. We were cramped into this, this van. And it's, I mean, it sounds silly, but it, I felt like I was going to die. My knees, I just need to stretch my legs out. It felt horrible. And so Nick and I were talking back and forth just about how miserable it was. And yet we face much more miserable things in this life, don't we? Many trials, many sufferings, many sorrows. You may be trapped in a broken relationship. You may feel like you're stuck in a job that you no longer want, that you no longer find fulfillment in, that you, you, you face persecutions in, perhaps, or you face sufferings in. Maybe you're in the midst of financial stress, and you're not sure how to get out of it, or it seems like it will never end, the difficulties that you face, or you know, emotional stress. Maybe you're facing poor health or pain. And I want to encourage you, with the words of, of James first, who says, Consider it joy, my brothers and sisters. This is one who is not unacquainted with suffering himself. Consider it joy, my brothers and sisters, when you go through various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Consider also, in Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. It's talking about the apostles, the disciples who were preaching the gospel. And what happened to them? It seemed like at every turn they were imprisoned, they were beaten, they were persecuted for proclaiming the gospel. And it says here, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, 
Listen, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Right? This is the truth of what this life holds for us. We know that as believers, our life doesn't get easier when we come to faith in Christ. Often it gets more difficult. We face troubles and trials and difficulties. So in the midst of your difficulties, ask God for faith. Ask God for faith in the midst of your difficulties. Ask God that, to give you faith as He gave it to Joseph, that you might have contentment in the midst of your suffering, that you might have a readiness to serve even in the midst of your difficulty, that you would have endurance to push through in faith in God. So God gives Joseph faith in this episode. He also gives Joseph revelation, as, as Lindsay pointed out this morning. God gives Joseph, Pharaoh as well, he gives his revelation. That means he is revealing himself to his people. The idea there is as if something's hidden behind a curtain and he draws back this curtain to allow us to see and understand. So first, he interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker in prison. And then second, he is to interpret this dream of Pharaoh. In verse 8, we see that he, Pharaoh calls together all the magicians of Egypt, all its wise men, but there was none who could give the interpretation. None who could give the meaning to Pharaoh. And in verse 9, we find the fuller reason why chapter 40 is included. God is working his purposes and his will. The cupbearer remembers Joseph. He fesses up to what he should have done from the very beginning, and he tells Pharaoh the story of this man who can interpret dreams. So Pharaoh uh, lifts Joseph up from the prison, says, uh, it's, it's said of you that you can interpret dreams. And look at Joseph's words in verse 16. This faith in God still there. It's not faith in himself and his own ability to interpret dreams. He says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. In other words, giving the meaning of dreams isn't a work of Joseph by himself. It is a work of God in revealing, in showing Joseph the interpretation. Verse 25, Joseph tells Pharaoh, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Also in verse 28, God has revealed to you what he is about to do. And Joseph, by revelation given by God, is able to give the meaning of the dreams. We see in verse 39, even Pharaoh acknowledges that God has shown him all of this. So what is the interpretation? That there will be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of horrible famine. Verse 32, Joseph says, The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. Kind of a side note, note all of the doubling in the story itself. The author is wanting to make this point, this is God's work. God has said it will happen, this is exactly how it's going to happen. The two officials had dreams. Two years passed from his imprisonment to his being raised up. Pharaoh has the two dreams, which are actually stated, you know, he repeats the full dream twice in the chapter. Uh, The complete sovereignty of God over all of creation in history is declared in, in just this simple doubling that the author gives us here. The thing is fixed and it will surely come to pass. You know, this reminds us, though, the story reminds us of another 
who received revelation and was able to interpret dreams. As uh, Lindsay intentionally told us, it was Daniel, right? Daniel has to not only interpret the dream, remember, what does he have to do? He has to tell uh, the king what the dream is. So imagine somebody having a dream and say, tell me what my dream was and give me the interpretation of it. That's ridiculous. No one can do that. Well, Daniel does it by the revelation of God. He is a prophet of God. He is one speaking the words of God and giving revelation. And in Daniel 2, 20 through 23, a little bit of what we read earlier, uh, Daniel says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in darkness, but the light dwells with him. It is said of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5, that he is a man in whom the spirit of the holy God dwells. A man who has the wisdom of God. And here of Joseph, it is said that he is a man in whom is the Spirit of God. Without this revelation to Pharaoh and to Joseph, all Egypt will die. All who are affected by this plague will die. And God's people themselves will suffer. And their very survival will be threatened as will the promised offspring. You know, the truth of this is that unless God reveals himself to us, we are all in the dark. Have you recognized that? Unless God shows himself to us, we are completely ignorant of who he is and of who we are and of how we might be saved. We are completely at his mercy to reveal himself to us. And he has done so. Praise God, right? He has done so. God has revealed himself to us. He has done so in two books. The book of creation, in which he declares his might, his power, and his goodness. Right? Everything we see in this created world points back to the fact that there is a creator. And he has revealed himself as well in the second book, the book of scripture. His holy word. And in the scripture, he has fully revealed himself in the Son, the Messiah, who came. Jesus not only spoke revelation, but he is the revelation of who God is. So in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, we read, Long ago at many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by his word of power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Some today are unsatisfied with the revelation that God has given us in creation and in his word. They're unsatisfied with the revelation of Christ and the scripture. And we often can want more, right? We may want God to visit us with dreams or visions. 
Maybe we want Him to give us signs, or maybe we have an important decision we need to make, and we wish He would just write it down, like we'd, I don't know, wake up in the morning and go to the breakfast table, and there would be a letter from God telling us what we ought to do. Wouldn't that be simple? Maybe we wish He would like, speak to us in an audible voice. Jim, turn left right there. I have something very important for you to do. Right? In many ways, we could find ourselves unsatisfied with the revelation that God has given us. Maybe if we knew the future, we could prepare for it differently. But the truth is, we don't need those things. We won't know the future, but we have been given all that we need in Christ and in His Word. Amen? 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture has been breathed out by God. It's profitable that the man of God may be fully equipped. In 2 Peter 1.19, Peter, who is an eyewitness of the majesty of Christ, who heard a voice from heaven, an audible voice, says, the prophetic word is sufficient for us. He's, he's writing this to Christians. He says, you don't need the, the audible voice of God. You don't need to see it yourself. You have this sure word of the Scriptures. We don't know our future health We don't know our future job prospects. We don't know the future stock market, our future life. We we don't know what even tomorrow holds for us. But do you know, you do know, however, what God has revealed to you in His Word. What He has revealed to you in Christ. Consider, brothers and sisters, your own relationship to Christ and His Word. His word that he has given to reveal himself to you. Do you have a hunger for God's holy word? Think about that a moment. Do you have a hunger for God's word? You know, is it still there? Like the moment when you first uh, became a Christian, you trusted in Jesus Christ. You were probably on fire for Christ and you were devouring Uh, The Word of God, you were devouring Scripture, reading, just wanting to find out more about who God is. You wanted to know Him. You wanted to know how you could please Him. And you knew it was found in the Scripture, where He has revealed Himself. I fear, sometimes for myself and for other brothers and sisters, that we have become dull in our appetite for Christ and His Word. Is this true of you? Have you become dull of heart? Concerning Christ and His Word, Psalm 119, 70, speaks of the enemies of God and then speaks of the man of God. It says, their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. I delight in your law. You know, such dullness to Christ and His Word is a deep and serious sin, brothers and sisters. To be dull of heart towards the things of God. How could we? How could we be uncaring about Christ and His Word? Oh, that we would be like the psalmist, delighting in the law of God. Oh, that we would, we would follow in the example of Christ our Savior who said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Who says, It is my food to do the will of God. God gave Joseph faith and he gave him revelation. And third, God gives Joseph wisdom. 
Notice in verses 33 to 36 how Joseph responds. How Joseph responds. He gives the interpretation. Um, It's almost humorous. And then he says in verse 33, Now let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. Who could that be? (laughs) And set him over the land of Egypt. And then he gives his own, uh, from his own wisdom, he gives, here's what you should do. He goes ahead and inserts this in there. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Let them gather the food so that they'll be ready for the plague. The food shall be a reserve. He, he has all these plans in his own mind. He's giving these, uh, he's giving these plans to Pharaoh, even as he's saying you ought to select a wise man. He, not, he knew not only how God was going to work, but he also knew how to apply this knowledge to the situation. This is what wisdom is. Understanding revelation from God and then being able to make application into one's life. Even Pharaoh in verse 37 through 39 acknowledges a special gifting of God. This is one in whom is the Spirit of God Himself. God gives Joseph wisdom. In this case, for the sake of the nations and for God's people and His offspring. This is a situation of epic proportions in the history of the world and in the history of God's people. Um, This hinges on Joseph's right application of wisdom to the situation. But why on earth would God care about my situation enough to give me wisdom? My, My situation is nothing like Joseph's and his opportunity to preserve God's people. Why would he care about me? Maybe you, you've considered this. As grand as God is, as mighty and His majesty, why would he care about a single individual in all of history, in all the world, out of millions and millions and millions of people? Why would he care? Well, we read in the Scripture that God cares for birds and lilies. He cares for the flowers of the field. He cares for the sparrow. And Jesus says, how much more will he care for you who are his children? You know, God is not limited in his ability to care for individuals like we are. This is a great mercy of God. That God would not only have a people from him for himself, but he would have genuine intimacy with individuals who are his children. James says, if anyone lacks knowledge, let him ask of God, who gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Someone said recent. I read something recently on Facebook about uh, one of the benefits of getting old is you gain wisdom. And I was like, you don't get wisdom just by getting old, right? You, You might be getting more and more foolish as you get old. It's not an automatic thing that you get wisdom when you get old. It is if you pursue the wisdom of God. If you receive the wisdom of God. Now I'm not saying our older members don't have wisdom. They do have much wisdom. We have much to learn from older adults in our society. And we have too often looked to the young to set standards and to set trends. We we rather should value those who are old in the faith. But we get wisdom by asking from God. And by pursuing knowledge of Him in His revelation, in His Word. We get wisdom through His revelation in the Scripture as we walk together on this journey of faith. 
Too often, however, we have spurned the wisdom of God. Consider your own decision-making, how you have perhaps decided to take a certain course, even though the Scripture tells you that that course you're taking is laden with sin. And don't you make excuses? Don't you justify yourself? Even though, you might say, even though I know, you know, the Bible says this, my situation's a little different, and, you know, it makes sense for me right now to do it this way. Teens and children, you're going to be faced with this. You're going to be faced with hearing the wisdom all around you of your peers, of adults who aren't believers. You're going to be be tempted to receive that wisdom rather than to trust in the wisdom that God gives in His Word. All of us are tempted to do that. And yet wisdom is found as we gather together to be addressed by God Himself. In the reading and preaching of His Word, God is addressing us, brothers and sisters, and He gives us wisdom day by day, week by week, year by year, and we learn wisdom together. Moving to the last point, finally God gives Joseph joy. So Pharaoh appoints Joseph as that wise man over all the land of Egypt. According to your command, Pharaoh says, all the people shall kiss the ground before you. Only Pharaoh is greater than Joseph. He gives him his signet ring, clothes of a king, jewelry of a king, of the chariot of a king. People bow down to him as a king. He's given a wife. He has success in his plans. So much grain, they couldn't even measure it anymore. He has children. Verses 51 and 52. There is Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. And there is Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And all the world has food in the midst of famine and provision for those who came to Joseph to buy it. God gave Joseph joy in his land of affliction. And God gives his people joy as well. In the midst of any circumstance that we face, God undergirds us and strengthens us with great joy. So, Do you have joy, the joy that God has promised you, because you are a part of his people? But consider the different angle that our joy is is from Joseph's. Although he had a deep and abiding joy in God as his strength, he also experienced many blessings physically. But our joy is found in Christ, in Christ alone. Our our joy is not found in being exalted to the highest place of power and honor. It is not found in clothes or jewelry, not in a fancy, expensive ride. It's not in having others bow down to us. It's not ultimately even in the families that God has given us. Do you hear me? We do have joy in God's good gifts of family, and perhaps that is the greatest gift we could have. But ultimately, our joy is not in any of these things, success in our plans, anything that this world could provide for us. And it is a great sin to find our ultimate joy in any of these things. Our joy is Christ alone. The promise to Adam was your offspring will crush the head of the serpent. To Abraham, through your offspring, all nations will be blessed. And one reading this book for the first time through might think, perhaps this is Joseph. He is is 
the offspring of Abraham. He is the offspring of Adam. He is the one who will rescue God's people. And he does for a time. But Joseph soon ends up forgotten by Pharaoh himself. And God's people are enslaved for hundreds of years. Joseph is not the promised seed, yet he points to the promised seed. Jesus is the greater Joseph. He didn't start at the, at the bottom and be, wasn't raised up to the top. He started at the top. Equality with God and came down in humility. When he came, he didn't arrive in a fancy road. You remember how he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Humble. He was stripped bare and only wore a crown of thorns. He was clothed in wounds and bruises from those who beat him. Though some did bow down to to him on Palm Sunday, they looked up to him as he hung on the cross on Good Friday. His hands and feet were fastened with nails, and a spear had been pierced into his side. And yet he also was a king. It was the sign above him on the cross which said, Here is Jesus, King of the Jews. The scripture says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is a king higher than Joseph appeared to be. He is the king higher than Pharaoh, higher than David, or any other king this world has known. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he calls you to trust in him. He calls you to faith in him. In the midst of your current situation, He calls you to trust Him for the revelation He has given you. He calls you to trust Him for wisdom in the midst of your circumstances. And He calls you not only to trust Him, right? This isn't just a cold, matter-of-fact faith. He calls you to rejoice in Him. He is worthy to be rejoiced in. And if we do not rejoice in Him, how how could we not rejoice in Him? Let us worship the King as we pray and as we close in a song of worship to Him.